I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. So we refers to myself, Blaine Dowler, and my co-host, Trey Hooks. How are you doing, Trey? Good, Blaine. How are you today? Ah, generally pretty good. So we're ready to discuss the 1977 release, Annie Hall? Yep. All right. This is a movie that was... Released for film festivals on March 27th, 1977. The wide release was April 20th. It was written by Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman and was directed by Woody Allen. The plot summary, courtesy of the contributors to Wikipedia, is Comedian Alvy Singer is trying to understand why his relationship with Annie Hall ended a year ago. Growing up in Brooklyn, he vexed his mother with impossible questions about the emptiness of existence but he was precocious about his innocent sexual curiosity, suddenly kissing a classmate at six years old and not understanding why she was not keen to reciprocate. Annie and Alvy, in a line for The Sorrow and the Pity, overhear another man deriding the work of Federico Fellini and Marshall McLuhan. Alvy imagines McLuhan himself stepping in at his invitation to criticize the man's comprehension. That night, Annie shows no interest in sex with Alvy. Instead, they discuss his first wife, whose ardor gave him no pleasure. His second marriage was to a New York writer who did not like sports and was unable to reach orgasm. With Annie, it is different. The two of them have fun cooking a meal of boiled lobster together. He teases her about the unusual men in her past. They had met playing tennis doubles with friends. Following the game, awkward small talk leads her to offer him a ride uptown and then a glass of wine on her balcony. There, what seemed a mild exchange of trivial personal data is revealed in mental subtitles as an escalating flirtation. The first date follows Annie's singing audition for a nightclub, it had to be you. After their lovemaking that night, Alvy is a wreck, while Annie relaxes with a joint. Soon, Annie admits she loves Alvy, while he buys her books on death and says that his feelings for her are more than just love. When Annie moves in with him, things become very tense. Eventually, Alvy finds her arm-in-arm -arm with one of her college professors, and the two begin to argue about whether this is the flexibility they had discussed. They eventually break up, and he searches for the truth of relationships, asking strangers on the street about the nature of love, questioning his formative years, and imagining a cartoon version of himself arguing with a cartoon Annie portrayed as the evil queen in Snow White. Alvy attempts a return to dating, but the effort is marred by neurosis and an episode of bad sex that is interrupted when Annie calls in the middle of the night, insisting that he come over immediately to kill two spiders in her bathroom. A reconciliation follows, coupled with a vow to stay together come what may. However, their separate discussions with their therapists make it evident there is an unspoken and unbridgeable divide. When Alvy accepts an offer to present an award on television, they travel to Los Angeles with Alvy's friend Rob. However, on the return trip, they agree that their relationship is not working. After losing Annie to her record producer Tony Lacey, Alvy unsuccessfully tries rekindling the flame with a marriage proposal. Back in New York, he stages a play of their relationship, but he changes the ending. Now she accepts. The last meeting between Annie and Alvy is a wistful coda on Manhattan's Upper West Side after they have both moved on to someone new. Alvy's voice returns with a summation. Love is essential, especially if it is neurotic. Annie sings Seems Like Old Times, and the credits roll. So, any immediate thoughts on that synopsis? Any edits or omissions? No, it, it's worth pointing out that the author of the synopsis rearrange things somewhat in chronological order, but the film doesn't necessarily flow that way. Yes, this is true. It is definitely nonlinear storytelling. So, for example, we see the scene with them and the lobsters before we see their first meeting. Yeah, and a lot of it is because this is mostly told in flashbacks, like they, the synopsis writer got correct. It starts with Alvy going, what went wrong? And when he's thinking about the things that went on in their relationship, he's not thinking about them in the order they happened. Right. And Alvy is a comedian. And the framing device, it, it's narrated as if this is a recollection and a memoir. But I get the feeling that the framing device was intended to be maybe him segueing into a bit on stage. It could be. 
there were some pretty significant edits, some of which are, well, they're going to come up in discussion later. So was this your first time seeing it? It was actually the second. The first time was mostly by reputation, but it was when I was in HMV as it was shutting down, completing my collection of Best Picture winners. So the idea of this podcast had occurred to me, but I wasn't committed to doing it yet because I wanted to make sure that I was actually going to be able to get them all, which, aside from CODA, I now have done. It's the second for me as well. I don't think I quite got all the way through the list, but when the first AFI 100 Years 100 Films list got released, and this is when, you know, there were still several brick-and-mortar movie rental businesses to where it was really easy to go and rent a movie on a whim's notice, um, barring, you know, way before streaming. We made an attempt to cover the entire list and got a good bit of the way through it, and that was the first time I watched Annie Hall. Okay. So what are your general thoughts on this? I think it's entertaining. It is funny, though I found it more chuckle funny than laugh out loud funny. I I don't want to tip my hand too much for later parts of the um, podcast, so I'll, I think I'll leave it at, you know, it, it, it's a good film. I'm not sure it's a great film. Okay, I think that's, yeah, I think we have kind of the same view on that. We've got, I'm feeling a little more stilted conversation with longer pauses than we usually have at this point, though most of those pauses will be edited out. And I think we're both just kind of holding back on what we're trying to say. Have you seen a lot of Woody Allen's work? I have not. So I've, yeah, I've heard some some interesting things that he's one of those guys where nobody disputes his ability to make film, but there's some division on what kind of a human being he is. He came along at kind of a weird transitional period. So he he grew up in the days of radio and vaudeville, and you can tell that that's a strong influence on him. He, you know, uh, famously, I'm not going to get right which one it was, but, you know, Sid Caesar had two really popular land-breaking variety shows. I think he came up as a comedian and a TV writer on the waning days of uh, Sid Caesar's second program. So he's a comic in the 60s and 70s who's heavily influenced by the 40s. If you know what I mean, so like, I I have not seen a lot of his work, but my my impression of what little I've seen is that Woody Allen is a really good writer and director, but his acting style is he's kind of like a Groucho Marx, and I don't mean that he's imitating Groucho Marx, but like, no matter what movie you saw Groucho Marx in, Groucho Marx was playing the character of Groucho Marx regardless of what the character's name is. And I feel like Woody Allen does that. There is a Woody Allen character, and his films are just dropping that Woody Allen character in different settings and different situations with different names, but it's always the same Woody Allen character, if that makes sense. Yeah, he has a public persona, and that's the only persona you see him assume in anything, with the possible exception of the original Casino Royale. So that... Well, actually the second Casino Royale, but the first to make theatrical release. Right. So I never feel like we're getting a performance for him, or if we are, we're getting the same performance that we always get. This is a very mature and adult film. I can say that I can appreciate it now as a 40-something when I didn't get a lot of it as a 20-something. It's also a very technical, and I don't want to say snobbish, but intellectual film. Like, I really wonder how well did this play with, like, the Midwest in 1977? Because were there really a lot of people who would have, in middle America, that would have been up on the films of Federico Fellini? And, like, I know Truman Capote would have been a name that people knew, but how many... I, I don't know. There, There's something almost elitist in it. Like, they they love film, but they pretty much only love foreign film and documentaries. You, you know what I mean? It's not... It's almost like they were hipsters before hipsters were cool. Yeah, I they, the, the characters 
they were real characters, but they were they weren't characters that I would have met in Nashville, Tennessee, in 1977. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, this movie seems to be very deeply inspired by Woody Allen's experiences in L.A. with a certain crowd, and he may be transplanting members of that crowd to other parts of the country to tell his story. Yes. I mean, there are some of them, sure. The guy was, uh, he was a film prof, or he, he taught media studies, the one in the line. And I get that if you've got a four-hour documentary on Nazis called The Sorrow and the Pity, well, yeah, you know what? You are going to attract that contingent in the local population, no matter how small the minority is. But would you have that many people in line for it? And I realize that this was a time but before home video to where... You know, things did get re-released in cinemas. But if you follow the timeline of the film, that documentary had to be in rotation and showing at art house theaters for years. Like, there would have to be the demand for it to keep coming back year over year. <laughs> yeah, it's a 1969 documentary that they can watch on a whim. So, you know, granted... If he's talking about, you know, why his relationship ended a year ago, if it comes out contemporary and based on the wardrobe, I would say, you know, that framing device is meant to be contemporary. This means that even as recent as 1976, they could just go watch it whenever they felt like it or whenever he felt like it, more to the point. I feel like maybe it is all an act, you know, like I don't think like Rodney Dangerfield really didn't get respect from anybody, right? And I know this film's not autobiographical, and yet he obviously is bringing things from from his real life into it, right? He was a comedian. He did grow up in Brooklyn. You know, all, all of that is true. There seems to be a certain amount of self-loathing in the character. Like, he enjoys being miserable, and then he inflicts that miserable, that miserableness on everyone else. Mm -hmm. He is a man stuck out of time a little bit. He wants to be an intellectual liberal, but like the drug scene's too much for him. The rock and roll scene's too much for him, etc. Yeah, and I think you nailed some of it there where you're saying that he's trying to bring people to his level. Because that, I think, is why this film, on a fundamental level, has not worked for me either time I've watched it. It's supposed to be... A romantic comedy, and yes, I get that it's a satirical romantic comedy, but when I see these two together, I clearly see sacrifices Annie Hall is making for the benefit of the relationship. I don't see Alvy doing the same. Right? She is trying to adapt to him, but I don't see him making efforts to adapt to her. So I'm watching this going, this relationship is unhealthy, I don't want it to work out, so I'm I'm satisfied by the ending, because it doesn't work out, but it seems like it's mutual and the two of them don't fit. I'm going, he's not trying, but she is. Where's the acknowledgement to that? And he, again, he self-sabotages himself. Her trying to conform to what he wants is part of what drives them apart. Yeah, I mean, she repeatedly brings up the fact that he was pushing her for adult education courses and he's talking about how wonderful it is and what the benefits are. She fears that he just thinks she's too dumb. And his arguments... If they were the genuine article, he'd be signing up too. And he's not. Which is probably why he's not convincing her, but they don't actually say it. Because they're trying to not rock the boat. I mean, there are moments where you can see why they're happy for a time. Right? Especially when they first meet that stuff. They've had good days together, but it's also clear this is not a long-term solution for either of them. So I find it hard to root for the relationship when that should be the core of the film. And is it... Fair to say that Annie Hall is probably manic's not maybe not the right word, but she's kind of one of the proto manic pixie girls in film. Yeah, she's one of the early ones that I think some of that is just she's an actual character, and that's one thing that Woody Allen and Marshall Brickman do deserve credit for in creating this film. Prior to this, so many of the female romantic leads were treated as a perfect trophy for the man to eventually obtain if he reaches certain goals. Whereas Annie is an interesting and flawed and fully developed human being who's in here. So they, they do have a, a fully realized woman in their script. I don't know how much of it was at the script level, 
and how much of that is what Diane Keaton brought with her performance. But it's there in the finished product, which was still, sadly, very rare 80 years after they started making movies. Mm -hmm. 77 years after they started putting narrative structure into the movies. So yeah, it took five years before people making movies said, hey, you know, these could be more than animated postcards. So shall we go through the rest of the cast? Yeah. So we've already mentioned that Woody Allen plays Alvy Singer. Diane Keaton is in the title role. We also have Tony Roberts as Rob. Carol Kane as Allison. Paul Simon as Tony Lacey. Shelley Duvall as Pam. Janet Margolin as Robin. And that pretty much wraps up the primary characters. Mm-hmm. But we have a number of people here who are just getting their careers started, including Christopher Walken, John Glover, and Jeff Goldblum. We've got cameos by Dick Cavett and the actual Marshall McLuhan. So when he imagines Marshall McLuhan showing up, they got the actual Marshall McLuhan to show up for when they were filming that scene. So this does have a very strong cast. It it does. You know, I looked up Rob Stark and they were... And it was predominantly, you know, he's in most of Woody Allen's films. And that struck me as funny because growing up, Woody Allen was always too adult. So he's not someone that I would have, like, seen his films or most of his films as like a, you know, as a teen or anything. But I know who Tony Roberts is. But I don't know where I would have seen him based off of his filmography, other than Woody Allen films, if that makes sense. So, and, and maybe it's maybe he's done some voiceover, and it's his voice that I'm remembering more than his face, because he's got a very distinctive voice. I, I can't say he was poorly cast. I felt like Paul Simon was the least of him. Paul Simon clearly felt like, or clearly seemed like, someone who was attempting to act who was not an actor, right? He He kind of came across as the most wouldn't it, it was a hoot seeing john glover i was not expecting that no um i also forgot to mention mark leonard who at this point had already played Sarek on star trek he's in here as a navy officer but yeah john glover jeff goldblum christopher walken when they show up it's holy cow it's them mm-hmm. truman capote is in here as himself and as a truman capote lookalike so he's got the right people working on it that's for sure we'll talk about that a little more later but or maybe we should talk about it now. Well, I was gonna say I, you know, I, I think ultimately. Well, no, I'll, I'll hold off because it's it's probably more germane when we're talking about what got nominated and why. I'll hold off. Yeah. Um. Th- there is one thing that I want to establish before we get into the awards, which sounds like will not be far off in our conversation. The director's cut of this film that Woody Allen turned in was two hours and twenty minutes. The finished product was ninety-three minutes. And a lot of that editing did not go to the credited Ralph Rosenblum, but it was actually Wendy Green Brickmont who did that final edit. Who is that? She is listed as an editor on this. She wasn't the main editor on the credits. I saw edited by, and it was just Ralph Rosenblum. And yeah, when you dig into it, Wendy Brickmont is there too. She has gone on to edit a lot of others. So this is her first film editing credit, but she ended up doing a fixed job on Slumber Party Massacre, so she was uncredited in that, but went through and fixed that up. She did Plan of the Cave Bear, License to Drive, Kindergarten Cop, so she's done a lot of comedies after this. Mm-hmm. My Girl 1 and 2, Calendar Girl, Junior, Race the Sun, Six Days, Seven Nights, Evolution, The Sweetest Thing, Mean Girls, Herbie Fully Loaded, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, she's been racking up the credits. The most recent credit was a 2022 release, and we're recording this in February 2023. So she is still active and working today. But I mention that because going from 2 hours and 20 minutes down to 93 is a pretty drastic change. The only other movie I'm aware of that lost that much of its runtime was Superman 4, and that's one of the two reasons that movie ended up being such a disaster. The other main reason is that they were promised a $55 million budget, and that's what they planned for, and a week before shooting started, they were told, sorry, we can only give you 17 because that's all we have. So they ended up having to switch their special effects companies. They had the people who were doing the original Superman effects lined up, but they couldn't afford them with the money that was left because they were already committed to locations, committed to cast who 
all understood the situation and took big pay cuts up front in exchange for some of the box office return, which sadly did not work out as well as they had hoped. But yeah, they, they cut a lot out of that film. And I think that was because at the time, major chains like AMC would put in one more screening in the evening and in the matinee, so two more screenings a day for opening weekend, if a film was under 90 minutes. And with the terrible special effects that they ended up being able to afford in this, some of the filming wasn't what they wanted it to be because with that pay cut, mm -hmm. they decided to do lots and lots of rehearsals and then one take of everything. and tried very, very hard to get everything on the first take when the cameras were actually running. It was desperate times. They turned in something that wasn't good, and director Sidney J. Fury was hoping that they would look at his $136 million movie and Warner Brothers' distributor would come up with some of the cash that Carolco didn't come up with in order to let them finish the movie the way they wanted to and go back and reshoot and redo the effects. But instead, Warner cut that 136-minute movie down to 89 minutes and 52 seconds, which I swear was saying, we're going to lose money on this no matter what, let's get in one more screening per shift to try and recover as much money as we can before word gets out about how bad this is. I find it hard to believe you can cut out a third of a movie and still have a good movie if it was going to be a good movie in the first place. And that's one of my issues that we're going to get into is they cut out a third of this movie and what's left is good. Mm -hmm. So what did the director's cut look like? And going through it here, forgot to mention the last two credited people here, Alvy and Annie's dates when they bump into each other at the end were Sigourney Weaver and Walter Bernstein. <laughs> so did you have any other comments before we get to the awards themselves? Um, I didn't. Okay, so the 50th annual Academy Awards took place on April 3rd, 1978 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Bob Hope, and Best Picture did go to Annie Hall, beating out The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Star Wars, and The Turning Point. Best Director went to Woody Allen, beating out Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Fred Zinneman for Julia, George Lucas for Star Wars, and Herbert Ross for The Turning Point. Best Actor went to Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl, beating out Woody Allen for Annie Hall, Richard Burton for Equus, Marcello Mastriani for A Special Day, and John Travolta for Saturday Night Fever. Best Actress went to Diane Keaton for Annie Hall, and Bancroft for The Turning Point was nominated, as were Jane Fonda for Julia, Shirley MacLaine for The Turning Point, and Marsha Mason for The Goodbye Girl. Best Supporting Actor went to Jason Robards, for Julia, as Dashiell Hammett, which is interesting to see him as a fictionalized character. He beat out Mikhail Baryshnikov for The Turning Point, Peter Firth for Equus, Alec Guinness for Star Wars, and Maximilian Schell for Julia. Best Supporting Actress went to Vanessa Redgrave for Julia, beating out Leslie Brown for The Turning Point, Quinn Cummings for The Goodbye Girl, Melinda Dillon for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, who sadly we lost about a week ago at the time of this recording. And the last nominee was Tuesday Weld for Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Best Screenplay went to Annie Hall, beating out The Goodbye Girl, The Late Show, Star Wars, and The Turning Point. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium went to Julia, beating out Equus, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, Oh God, and That Obscure Object of Desire. Best Foreign Language Film went to Madame Rosa, beating out Iphigenia, Operation Thunderbolt, A Special Day, and That Obscure Object of Desire. Best Documentary Feature went to Who Are the DeBolts, and Where Did They Get 19 Kids? beating out The Children of Theater Street, High Grass Circus, Homage to Chagall, The Colors of Love, and Union Maids. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Gravity is My Enemy, beating out Aguenda Martinez, Our People, Our Country, First Edition of Time, Tomes, and Treasures, and The Shetland Experience. Best Live Action Short Film went to I'll Find a Way, beating out The Absent-Minded Waiter, Floating Free, Notes on the Popular Arts, and Spaceborne. Best Animated Short Film went to The Sandcastle, beating out Bead Game, The Doonesbury Special, and Jimmy the Sea. Best Original Score went to John Williams for Star Wars, beating out John Williams for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Georges Delarue for Julia, Maurice Jarre for Mohammed Messenger of God, and Marvin Hamlish for The Spy Who Loved Me. Best Original Song Score and its Adaptation or Adaptation Score went to A Little Night Music, beating out Pete's Dragon and The Slipper and the Rose, The Story of Cinderella. The Best Original Song went to the title track from You Light Up My Life, beating out Candle on the Water from Pete's Dragon, Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me, The Slipper and the Rose Waltz from The Slipper of the Rose, and Someone's Waiting for You from The Rescuers. Best Sound went to Star Wars, beating out Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Deep, Sorcerer, and The Turning Point. 
Best costume design went to Star Wars, beating on Airport 77, where Edith Head was nominated, Julia, A Little Night Music, and The Other Side of Midnight. Best art direction went to Star Wars, beating on Airport 77, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Spy Who Loved Me, and The Turning Point. Best cinematography went to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, beating out Islands in the Stream, Julia, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and The Turning Point. Best film editing went to Star Wars, beating out Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Julia, Smokey and the Bandit, and The Turning Point. And best visual effects, Star Wars, beat out Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The Academy Honorary Awards went to Margaret Booth. The Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award went to Charlton Heston. The Irving Jean Thalborg Memorial Award went to Walter Mersch. The Special Achievement Awards went to Ben Burt for the creation of the alien creature and robot voices in Star Wars. And Frank Warner for sound effects editing and close encounters of the third kind. Now, as far as the multiple award nominations and winners are concerned, the most nominations went to Julia and the Turning Point, tied with 11. Then Star Wars had 10. Close Encounters had eight. Annie Hall and the Goodbye Girl were tied with five. So there's three nominations each for Equus and the Spy Who Loved Me, two nominations each for Airport 77, A Little Night Music, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Pete's Dragon, The Slipper and the Rose, A Special Day, and That Obscure Object of Desire. The multiple wins went to Star Wars with six competitive wins plus the special award, four wins for Annie Hall, and three wins for Julia. So Annie Hall won everything it was nominated for, with the exception of Woody Allen as Best Actor. So, what is your gut reaction? My gut reaction is that the 50th Academy Awards is pro- is probably how a lot of people view the Academy Awards today. The genre films, which tend to be the more popular films at the box office, sweep the technical categories. And the more dramatic films or important films take what I'll call the art categories, for lack of a better word. I mean, I will, <laughs> I, I will kick it off. What do you think makes a nominee for Best Picture? You know, is it great performances? Other than Diane Keaton, I don't think we have that here. Is it an extremely well-made film? I think Annie Hall's an extremely well-made film. It's not the best-made film of this year. You know, do we think it's something pivotal? Do we see the industry changing before our eyes? That's not Annie Hall. I know anybody who follows either of us on any form of social media knows that we are both into things like science fiction and comics, etc., I think even with my personal biases aside, through a 2023 lens, Star Wars was the best picture out of these films that were nominated this year. It certainly was the most influential in it. Even if you put aside the fact that it's a continuing franchise, if there were no more prequels or sequels beyond the original trilogy, we would still be talking about Star Wars today. Because of... Because of it being a Neil Simon play, I still hear Goodbye Girl be talked about occasionally. Nobody mentions the rest of these films. Yeah. If it were up to me, and just picking, the 1977 Best Picture race would have been between Star Wars and Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. And Close Encounters wasn't even nominated. The only thing holding me back on Star Wars is that the story is pretty by-the-numbers Campbell hero as we all know it's the hero's journey. So that I can see holding it back a little bit, but you also have to keep in mind when we watch that as a science fiction buff and fantasy buff, I've seen many older movies that were trying to create worlds we hadn't seen before and none of them accomplished it like Star Wars did. Right from the outset, this feels like a fully realized universe. Just having random guys threaten Luke and brag about how many systems they're wanted in when they're in Mos Eisley it doesn't feel like so many other works at all levels where the other characters that are not your lead characters exist solely to serve this story. Right? I'm also a big detective TV show buff. A lot of TV shows, the characters are either suspects, victims, or red herrings, and they seem to have no life aside from adding clues or red herrings to the mystery. Whereas Star Wars, it actually feels realized enough that you feel like everyone in Mos Eisley has a story. And Kevin J. Anderson edited 
a short story collection about Moss Eisley Cantina stories. So they just put out short stories detailing what the lives were of all these guys, and that potential seems to fit. So it could make that case for Star Wars. If you want innovative storytelling, you could just as easily go to Close Encounters, mm-hmm. which is not as influential today, but it definitely had an impact over the next decade. Yeah, Close Encounters was more of a antecedent to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It was, yeah. Star Wars is science fantasy. Close Encounters was more hard science fiction. Yeah, I've even heard Star Wars described as space opera. There's, there is no science involved in that fiction. Their, their tech is just as magical as the Force. It, it's just, and I'm not trying to be down on any hall. Like, this isn't going to be one to where I say don't go watch this movie. But, you know, it, it's buoyed by one great performance. So, like, is Diane Keaton's acting in Annie Hall better than any of the acting in Star Wars? Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's where it stops. And I'm not trying to reduce her, you know, I'm not trying to reduce her performance. But pound for pound, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Alec Guinness, Carrie Fisher, they were equaling, if not surpassing, what Woody Allen and Tony Roberts were doing in the film. I really feel like... I really feel like Annie Hall had the leg up because it was so... Inside Hollywood is not the right phrase, but the characters in that movie were probably what a lot of the Academy voters were like or what they wanted to think they were like. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think Annie Hall would have resonated with those in L.A., which so deeply influenced the way it was created, far more than it would have resonated with the general population. And that's not to say it doesn't resonate. It, I enjoy it, not as much as I was hoping to. Right? I'll, this is probably not the last time I'm going to watch it. Right? It, it is an enjoyable film. But now knowing that Woody Allen was afraid this was going to end his career because his two-hour and 20-minute cut was flipping back and forth between three couples. And Ralph... Rosenblum or Rosen? Let me get his name right. Ralph Rosenblum also thought this was unrecoverable. And it was Wendy Green Brickmont who stepped up and said, This Annie Hall plot is the only one that's working, and cut the other two couples out. So they're going to follow Rob in one of his relationships, and I forget who the other one was. So she's the one that slashed it down. And I'm not even sure that that first. I'm getting conflicting information on whether the first draft it was even called Annie Hall and whether that was the focus or whether it was one of the other relationships. Although, cutting 45 minutes of these 93 are all about her, I can't imagine that it wasn't the focus. But knowing what we know about the film now, I'd say it deserved to win two awards. Diane Keaton is one. That one the Academy got right, as far as I can tell. I haven't seen the competition, so I, right, I haven't seen The Turning Point, Julia, or The Goodbye Girl. So it's possible that when I see those, I would say, oh no, she should have just had the nomination, not necessarily the win. But she did an Oscar-worthy performance in this film. And then I think Wendy Green Brickmont should have taken home the editing award because she's the one that took a film that people thought was going to end careers and made it the film we have now. Yeah, I mean, I I don't have any heartburn over it taking best uh, screenplay. Though, again, you wonder what these things, right? Was the screenplay that they, like, do they actually publish out the screenplay to the Academy to read? So They do. So they got the two-hour version. Yeah, they got the two-hour and 20-minute version and and still picked the screenplay. I, I struggle with best director because, you know, to me, best director is what performances did you get and how difficult of a film it was to make. And because they were pushing the boundaries, I gotta believe Star Wars and Close Encounters were the most difficult movies to make this year. And again, don't get me wrong, Annie Hall did things differently. You know, the subtitles, the animated sequence, the breaking the fourth wall by going, oh yeah, well I have the expert right here, let me trot him out to tell you what a fool you are. All of those were things that you wouldn't see in your typical film. Uh, again, 
they appeal more to the avant-garde set. None of them rival the fur <laughs> that opening long shot of Star Wars, right? So, I mean, and again, maybe that's why it just took the technical awards. But I, I, I just feel like Star Wars was the better film. I think I could easily see Spielberg winning for best director here instead of instead of Woody Allen, especially if the screenplay was so strong that it deserved to take home the award. And the movie, Alan and Rosenblum both agreed, was not working by the time he finished directing it. And that it was, you know, it, it was Brickbunt who fixed it. So if those pages worked so well as a script, but did not work well as a finished product, to me, that's on the director. The only other comment that I've got on the awards, and this is, this is personal taste, and it's not really about the film that we're covering, but for best original song, I know that You Light Up My Life was huge when it came out, but I like Nobody Does It Better as a song. Again, I don't even know that I clearly recall You Light Up My Life. Going through it, I saw Pete's Dragon as a child. I don't remember. Candle on the Water. Nobody Does It Better is the only one that I know I've heard on the radio. Now, again, if You Light Up My Life is a slow ballad, that means I'm just not listening to it because I'm not a fan of the slow-paced music. So... We'll talk about more in about 20 podcasts. I would agree that of those, Nobody Does It Better is the only one that stands out to me. So it's still not a fantastic song in my opinion, because again, it's slower paced than what I like to listen to. But just the fact that it's not the kind of music I choose to listen to. And yet I, when I saw, finally saw The Spy Who Loved Me, it was, oh, that was a Bond song. Okay, because I was, I already knew it. It was part of the cultural consciousness. I will say this, in defense of the Academy, the way that I understand it works and the way that it may have worked then, one, I don't know if they had all of the information that we do now. Like, in 1977, did the voters know that the film was saved by this barely credited editor? I, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm sure nobody went, I'm sure Woody Allen didn't go around promoting the film saying you know I was pretty sure this was going to be a piece of crap you know what I mean so and then like we talked about the screenplay versus the film the voters for best screenplay got the script to read and vote but that's not necessarily the same contingent that's voting for best film so they may not or even best director so they may not have known that this was massively saved in editing yeah, and that's one thing. I'm not going to fault the Academy too much for making this choice in 77 because I don't know how much they knew either. You're absolutely right. That could be something that came out in interviews decades later that is now common knowledge when we're doing this. So how many of those Academy voters who supported it heard that and went, oh, I messed up then? That's not something we'll know. So shall we go through the Golden Globes? Yes. All right, so the 35th Golden Globes were held on January 28th, 1978. The best motion picture drama went to the turning point, beating out Close Encounters, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, Julia, and Star Wars. Best comedy or musical went to The Goodbye Girl, beating out Annie Hall, High Anxiety, New York, New York, and Saturday Night Fever. So all five of the nominees were nominated across the two categories, but they did not choose Annie Hall. For best performance in a motion picture drama... Actor went to Richard Burton for Equus, beating out Marcelo Mastrano for A Special Day, Al Pacino for Bobby Deerfield, Gregory Peck for MacArthur, and Henry Winkler for Heroes. Yes, that is the Fonz who was up for a Golden Globe. Best Actress went to Jane Fonda for Julia, beating out Anne Bancroft for The Turning Point, Diane Keaton nominated for Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Catherine Quinlan for I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, and Gina Rowlands for Opening Night. So keep in mind that was the drama category. So Annie Hall was not eligible there. Uh, Best performance in a comedy or musical went to Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl, beating out Woody Allen for Annie Hall, Mel Brooks for High Anxiety, Robert De Niro for New York, New York, and John Travolta for Saturday Night Fever. Best actress was a tie. It went to Diane Keaton for Annie Hall and Marsha Mason for The Goodbye Girl. So they beat out uh, Sally Field for Smokey and the Bandit, Liza Minnelli for New York, New York, and Lily Tomlin for The Late Show. Best Supporting Performance in a Motion Picture, and again, here it's drama, comedy, or musical. They do not divide this category. 
Supporting actor went to Peter Firth for Equus, beating up Mikhail Baryshnikov for The Turning Point, Alec Guinness for Star Wars, Jason Robards for Julia, and Maximilian Schell for Julia. And I should have commented before, but the Alec Guinness, I think that nomination was more a lifetime achievement mm-hmm. because he has absolutely given Oscar-worthy performances in the past, but Obi-Wan isn't one of them. So he he did not respect the material and was phoning it in. And it was his suggestion to have Obi-Wan killed off so he and show up as that spector just for a few minutes here and there so he wouldn't have to say as much of that banal dialogue if the sequels happened that he was contractedly or contractually obligated for. Anyway, Best Supporting Actress went to Vanessa Redgrave for Julia. Anne-Margaret was nominated for Joseph Andrews, as were Joan Blondell for The Opening Night, Leslie Brown for The Turning Point, Queen Cummings for The Goodbye Girl, and Lilia Scala for Roseland. Best Director went to Herbert Ross for The Turning Point, beating out Woody Allen for Annie Hall, George Lucas for Star Wars, Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Fred Zinnerman for Julia. Best Screenplay went to The Goodbye Girl for Neil Simon, beating out Annie Hall, Close Encounters, Julia, and The Turning Point. Best Original Score went to John Williams for Star Wars, beating out John Williams for Close Encounters, Joel Hirshhorn for Pete's Dragon, Saturday Night Fever, and The Spy Who Loved Me. Best Original Song, title track to You Light Up My Life one, beating Deep Down Inside from the Deep, How Deep Is Your Love from Saturday Night Fever, New York, New York, that title track, and Nobody Does It Better from The Spy Who Loved Me. Best Foreign Film, A Special Day, beat out Cria Cuervos, Madame Rosa, Pardon Mon Affaire, and That Obscure Object of Desire, which is interesting because of those, That Obscure Object of Desire is the one I still hear about and the one I watched in film studies, and yet it lost in both of the award shows. <laughs> Going on to television, Best Drama went to Roots, beating out Charlie's Angels, Columbo, Family, Starsky and Hutch, and Upstairs Downstairs. This is one time I actually agree Columbo should have lost. Best Series Comedy or Musical went to All in the Family, beating out Barney Miller, Carol Burnett Show, Happy Days in the Vernon Shirley. Best Television Film went to Raiden on Teb, beating out Just a Little Inconvenience. Mary Jane Harper Cried Last Night, Mary White and Something for Joey. Best Actor in a Drama went to Ed Absner for Lou Grant, beating out Robert Conrad for Baba Black Sheep, Peter Falk for Columbo, James Garner for The Rockford Files, and Telly Savalas for Kojak. That's a competitive category this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Best Actress for Drama went to Leslie Ann Warren for 79 Park Avenue, beating out Angie Dickinson for Policewoman. Kate Jackson for Charlie's Angels, Leslie Uggams for Roots, and Lizzie Wagner for The Bionic Woman. Best Actor, Comedy or Musical Series, went to Henry Winkler for Happy Days, beating out Alan Alda for MASH, Ron Howard for Happy Days, Hal Linden for Barney Miller, and Carol O'Connor for All in the Family. Best Actress went to Carol Burnett for her show, beating out B. Arthur for Maude, Penny Marshall for Laverne and Shirley, Isabel Sanford for The Jeffersons, Gene Stapleton for All in the Family, and Cindy Williams for Laverne and Shirley. And it's worth recognizing that we also lost Cindy Williams just a week ago as well, as of recording this. Yeah. yeah it hasn't been a good week for, for those actresses. So, so yeah. Aside from Diane Keaton, Annie Hall did not perform nearly as well with the Golden Globes than with the Oscars. Did you have any other thoughts about this one? I didn't. Alright, so going through how things are now regarded, looking at the the votes on IMDb and on Letterboxd. So again, IMDb, we can filter it by feature films with at least a thousand votes. With those filters in place, of the nominees, Star Wars comes first, Annie Hall is second, Goodbye Girl is third, Julia is fourth, and Turning Point is fifth. So Star Wars comes in at number three, Annie Hall at 15 for the year, Goodbye Girl is at 38, Julia's 55, Turning Point is 80, and my other pick for the Contender Close Encounters is number 29, so that would have been the third if we rank all six. Letterboxd puts them in exactly the same order, but because of the foreign films, the Doctor Who movie edits and that sort of thing, there's a lot more films on the list. It puts Star Wars at number five for the year, Annie Hall at number 25, Close Encounters shows up at number 66, The Goodbye Girl is number 205, And Julia and the Turning Point, at 72 results per page, they do not show up by the end of page 8. But they do come out in 4th and 5th looking at their raw scores. So the the lowest rated one is still a 3.2 out of 5, which is perfectly respectable for the Turning Point. Mm -hmm. It's just clear. I mean, even as you said, 
Star Wars Annie Hall and Goodbye Girl are the three that are still part of the conversation. And those came out top three. So did you have any thoughts about how these are now regarded historically? No, I think, you know, I, I think that feels right. Uh, Neil Simon's still a popular playwright. And while I, you know, I, I think Goodbye Girl is similar to like California Suite to where it's old enough that it's not as remembered as well as things like Brighton Beach Memoirs, Biloxi Blues, The Odd Couple, which, you know, is an all-time classic. For everything that we said about Annie Hall being targeting the L.A. crowd of the late 70s, it's still, from what I gather, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who has not watched a lot of Woody Allen's body of work, but from what I gather, it's considered one of his more, uh, one of his most uh, approachable films. And then put the books and the comics and the prequels and the recent sequels and the Disney Plus stuff, you can put all of that in a box in a corner and forget about it. The change which, to be fair, Jaws started in how films were marketed and made and produced, Star Wars turned up to 11 and changed the industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm sitting too. So I would have also given the award to Star Wars just because, like you said, there is a clear demarcation before and after that film. Whereas Annie Hall does not feel like the other movies of its day. But if anything, it's more of a callback than an innovation. Mm-hmm. So there there are innovative elements. I do like the conversation where we had the subtitles of what they were thinking about what was actually saying and how the flirtation was escalating. And there are moments like that, the insertion of the, you know, the, the animated segment I talked about as a kid, he was the one that, that fell in love with the, the evil queen. There are moments of innovation, but for the most part, like you're saying, there's, there's that strong vaudeville element and he's going back to the roots Whereas Star Wars was pushing forward in ways that other films hadn't. Right? It really felt like they were creating a new world. Without Star Wars, we would not have had Star Trek's return to the big screen. At least not in 1978, and not with the original cast. Right? Without it, the Star Trek franchise would have been those three live-action seasons, the two seasons of the animated series, and who knows if any of Roddenberry's attempts to bring it back would have gotten off the ground until the 90s when things were being rebooted. It could have been more like a lost in space than the financial juggernaut it is now, even if the current batch are divided by critics. We say this four days before Star Trek Picard Season 3 is scheduled to start, and that is being very well reviewed. But the first two seasons are definitely mixed, as are Discovery and some of the other ones. We wouldn't have had Battlestar Galactica. We wouldn't have had so many of the films of the 80s that were trying to cash in on the the Star Wars box office. Well, and not just that. Think about what film would be like without THX or ILM. Yeah, Star Wars was the first film to have optical stereo. And yeah, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, was a company created to do the visual effects, which is now the visual effects company in Hollywood. If you want the best, that is who you hire, bar none. There was stereo on film before that. The first on-film stereo was on the 70mm prints of 2001 A Space Odyssey. That was magnetic. It wasn't optical, which has its own issues, very much so. You can have sound distorted with a magnetic film strip if your projector is not designed properly, because it can produce magnetic fields. So George Lucas solved the stereo sound problem for Star Wars. THX was uh, sound quality. As yeah, as a storyteller, he did a great job creating the world, but his stories are rather simplistic. And if he hadn't told me what real-world allegories he was shooting for, I would not have picked up that they were in that film. He's a good editor. He doesn't know how to get great performances out of the actors. I mean, there are some good performances in Star Wars, but the great ones... Harrison Ford did a great job from the start. But that's because Harrison Ford is a great actor, and I think 
he figured it out on his own. It's not because of how Lucas was directing him. Right. You know, I I feel very sorry for Jake Lloyd, who became the front piece for the relaunch Star Wars, and he ended up retiring from acting because of all the negative feedback he got. But it's not his fault that he was so inexperienced. He had done better acting jobs before with directors who knew how to work with actors in of any age, especially child actors who tend to need more guidance. George Lucas should not have been directing a child that age because he doesn't know how to get those performances out. I mean, I think Ewan McGregor and Natalie Portman have done some of their weakest work for Star Wars because George Lucas wasn't very demanding. And they are both very capable actors too. That's just what the franchise is like. So we cannot dispute the impact it's had. It's become a franchise like others hadn't. Jaws, sure, that was the first true blockbuster. It was the first to break that $100 million at the box office mark. But the attempts to make that a franchise, right? how many people fondly remember the sequels? Whereas with Star Wars, the fans might be divided on which sequels are fondly remembered, but there are very few people who say only the 1977 film is good. I think most people these days, maybe not so much at the time because of the revelations, but in retrospect, I would say if you ask people what's the best Star Wars film, Empire Strikes Back is most likely to be at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. And then the prequels, whether people prefer the prequels or the other sequels, we'll see the Disney sequel trilogy. Of the prequels, I think episode three is at least on par with Jedi, which I think is the weakest of the original trilogy. Return of the Jedi, I should say, now that there's ambiguity there. The Disney trilogy, the issue there is largely that it wasn't, or if there was a plan for a trilogy when Abrams did episode seven, it wasn't adhered to. And I think Ryan Johnson went his own way with 8. And I like 8 better than a lot of people. There's elements I still dislike. Right? I, I don't know how they got Luke to the point he was in. But it's not as bad as others have said. Yeah, so I think the lack... Or the, the main issues I have with seven, eight, nine is the lack of coherence. But then you get Rogue One. Which I think is excellent. And probably the best of the Disney films. You get Solo that Star Wars story, which underperformed, I think, because so famously the directors were fired and replaced by Ron Howard partway through. But I walked into that saying, this is the Star Wars film nobody asked for, and walked out saying, this is the Star Wars film I never knew I always wanted. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun with that. And there's a reveal at the end for a character I never thought I'd be excited by that excited me. I really wish that it had performed well enough that they could have kept it going. But just the fact that Star Wars grew to a 12-film franchise says so much, whereas Woody Allen, who is now also somewhat stained by his personal life. Well, and with the films driving it, I, I feel like that's an important distinction there. Planet of the Apes, not so much, because there was really just the one first book. So I, I always want to be careful, because everything that I want to say about Star Wars from like merchandising, etc., it may not still be remembered in the same way, and it may not have made people rich in the same way. But Planet of the Apes covered some of the same ground. But, like, you, you look at the Bond films. Were the Bond films a franchise before Star Wars? Yes. And you had a successful book series driving the film franchise. I feel in a lot of ways, Star Wars was the first time you had a film franchise where it was the strength of the films driving the franchise. That's probably true, yeah. I mean, Planet of the Apes, Pierre Boulle's original novel is excellent. We brought him up before because he also wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm -hmm. It was not faithfully adapted into the film. They kept a lot of elements, but there's some where Rod Serling, when he was writing the first draft, he wanted more elements from the book than they had. He wanted a more faithful adaptation, including the sequence where you know our astronaut, who was played by Charlton Heston in the film, Rod Taylor, learns the alien language and starts to communicate with them. But Fox refused to have subtitles. They said, no, all English all the time. So Serling added an element that wasn't in the book. He said, okay, if they're speaking all English all the time, the only way that makes sense is if the Planet of the Apes is Earth and always has been, and he's back on Earth. So Serling did not come up with revealing that twist with the Statue of Liberty. His script was very different, but he's the one that put it on Earth because Fox didn't want subtitles, and that is 
a point of departure that launched a franchise when that novel, again, it, I recommend reading it. It ends differently, and it's not an ending that leaves a lot of room for sequels. And again, not so much interest for sequels. The framing story in that one is astronauts find Taylor's journal some unknown length of time after he wrote it. So he kept a personal diary, they find it and they read it, and the core of the story is what they read in the journal. So it, it doesn't have the Statue of Liberty twist ending, it actually has a double whammy of two back-to-back -back twists when that wraps up that are different than the one we had in the film. So, who would we recommend this to? I don't know. <laughs> it's not your typical rom-com, right? It, it expressly doesn't have a happy ending. It, it has several pop culture references that are now dated. And, you know, even when I was talking about, like, you know, it's a little too inside Hollywood, like, and I'm not saying this to build you and I up or anything, but, like, I think we got references that other people might not. You and I have seen some of the films of Fellini and Ullman to where, you know, those references wouldn't necessarily be lost on us. But I don't know that your average viewer today would know about the Stones at Altamont or who Marshall McClellan was or even who Truman Capote was. So for that reason, I think people might have a harder time connecting. I would say if you like a good romance, check it out. This isn't, on the one hand, it doesn't have necessarily the happy ending that you typically get with rom-coms, but it's not a tearjerker either. I will say it is definitely an adult film. I'm not saying don't let a 12 or 15 year old watch it from like a moral or prudish background. You know, that's between each family to decide. But I know that I first saw this in my early 20s and I didn't connect or get with a lot of the themes until watching it in my 40s. So. You know, I, I do think you have to have a certain amount of life experience and maturity under your belt to connect with some of the themes that they're covering in it. Yeah, I would agree. Again, not judging whether or not you should watch it with your young children, but if you are, be aware that discussions of their sex lives are just a part of the conversation and often happen while they are in bed under the sheets. So there's no nudity. There's little or no profanity, but it's still very mature themes. And in terms of making the connections, I think about it in the context of my students and, you know, would they, the high school students I teach, make these connections and get the references. Whether or not they get the Marshall McLuhan reference might depend on the grade because he's actually part of our local social studies curriculum. He's actually born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, which is where I'm, I was born and raised and still live today. So he, he was born and raised in this city. He was influential enough that he shows up in our history curriculum. I don't know that high school students in the U.S. would have ever heard of him today. So I think that part is just a little bit of a Canadian edge because in Canada, he's a, considered a bigger celebrity because he's local, especially in Alberta. So I don't even know if he's in the curriculum if you're in Ontario or Quebec or the Maritimes. So that's the one reference that, yeah, I would be confident that they've got. That's it. So as far as the rest goes, I do think that, yes, this is, as you said, Woody Allen has that persona that he plays in everything. If you are a fan of Woody Allen and that persona, check it out. But you, in that case, you probably have already anyway. So I'm even hesitant to recommend it to the rom-com or the romantic film favorites because... It's not the happy ending that a lot of people who like romance films are going for. A lot of people like the romances because they want to see them live happily ever after, and that's not what this is. So if anything, you are tired of of that genre trope, maybe then this is the rom-com to check out because it doesn't fall into those tropes. Yeah, I, I think where there's a universality to this film is not many people marry and stay together with their first love, right? So this, where I think there's a universality is, this is not about being miserable and alone in your future state, you know, 
you could be in a relationship that you're, you know, wonderfully happy with, but this is that looking back on, and I don't, I, I you know, I can't say that Annie was Alvy's first love, right? No. Um, but this is looking back on that one relationship that resonates with you that just didn't, that didn't end well, or that ended, period. I think a lot of that, it's not about being miserable and alone in old age. It feels like this is just about Albie being miserable, whether he's alone or not. Yeah. And so many of this, that's part of the reason I'm having a hard time engaging as a romantic comedy. It's because Albie is not... I think I keep saying Albie for Alvi, But he is, despite 15 years of therapy, not in a headspace where he can have a healthy relationship. And I see no indication that he's taking any ownership of that. Like you said at the start, it's about him dragging things down to his level. Yeah, it's through today's lens, he's a very toxic person. And he doesn't, I don't know that he has the self-awareness to know it. No, I would say he doesn't. And I would say he was a toxic person in 1977. Today's lens just makes that more obvious. Yes, yes. Because in some parts of the States, women were not allowed to have credit cards without a male co-signer by law until as late as 1973. And this is a 1977 film. So some of these relationships would have been in an era where some women were getting married because that was the only route to financial stability. I mean, it wasn't as bad as 100 years before that, where they could not own property, open bank accounts, and if they were allowed to get a job at all, the paychecks were in the husband's name. The only way for a woman to, to have anything in her own name would be if she was a widow. And even that might be a very brief window, because there were times when widows with kids lost everything because the husband's business partner stepped up and said, yeah, I helped him earn all that money. It's mine now. And the courts agreed and took everything from the family. So, and that's some of it. I, looking at it now, I was born the year this came out. So I never was a part of the society where a woman couldn't have her own credit card. And that would have still been part of the society when these relationships were there. So while he was toxic, there was also the expectation that a woman had to have this. She had to get married. And staying together for the sake of the children is something that you hear today for people saying why they're not divorced. As a teacher, I can tell you in many cases, that child is better off splitting their time between two happy homes than spending their time in one miserable home. When the women were staying together for the sake of the children, a lot of that was because if they tried to leave on their own, the systems were in place to make sure they could not legally support themselves financially. So if a woman left an abusive husband with her kids, well, the courts would say, oh, wait, you, you don't have a husband. You can't legally have a job. You can't legally own anything in your own name. Therefore, if you're supporting the kids, you must be generating that income illegally. And then they would take the kids away. So the, if a woman was in an abusive relationship, she either had to abandon her children with the husband or risk losing them, taking them with her. That's where staying together for the sake of the kids came from. It was, yes, this is a terrible situation, but if you leave this abuser, you will never have your kids with you again. And if you speak about this in public, then the police will agree your husband has the right to correct you for embarrassing him, and he can beat you without recourse. It was not a good situation. Sorry, this is a bit of a rant, because I've had this conversation with my students who think Andrew Tate is a role model. And he's trying to send back to the the image of the society that never really existed. It's still like that in some places. So, and I'm, I am not trying to denigrate any particular country or culture. I'll just throw that out there up front. I'm just speaking from my own experiences. So I, I work with a company that offshores it with a consultant in India. And I have had a couple of, opportunities to where for work I've needed to travel to India and on one trip I stayed over and my my wife and kids decided to to fly up and meet me there and have a small vacation in India because since I was already it was a little bit cheaper because you know the company paid for me to fly the company paid for my hotel you know some of that stuff so I had to sign something 
saying that I was aware that she was taking the kids into India and that she was doing so with my permission. And I don't know that the reverse would have been true if it was me. Yeah, uh, it's funny that you pick Amy as an example because these students I'm talking about, I teach in a Sikh cultural school. So yes, I am seeing remnants of that. But to be fair, when I talked about the financial situation women were in here within some lifetimes and within living memory, the teachers who left India in 1984 when the government decided to wipe out Punjab and the Sikhs, they are absolutely stunned that it ever got that bad. India never had those restraints. So it, there are definitely some elements where we are more progressive, but that was clearly one where India was ahead of the game in the 1940s, 50s, 1920s. So, bottom line, we all have work to do. It's just a question of how much and in which areas. Anyway, one other comment that I wanted to make and should have made much sooner, especially looking at what's coming up next month, I think part of what helped Annie Hall take that Oscar is because, despite the unhappy ending, it is more optimistic and upbeat than a lot of the films recently. There's been a lot of real downer films, so that might have been kind of a break from the ordinary. It's true. And I say that partly because of the reputation of our next film, and I'm saying this by reputation only because I've never actually seen it. So should we tell our listeners what they can look forward to next month? We can. Next month we are covering uh, Michael Cimino's Deer Hunter. Yes, that was nominated against Coming Home, Heaven Can Wait, Midnight Express, and An Unmarried Woman. And that uh, Heaven Can Wait is the Warren Beatty version from 1978, obviously. So this will be interesting. I don't know how many of them I'll be able to watch before next month, but I have seen zero of them at this point. Yes, I will say, uh, allow yourself um, some time. Uh, Deer Hunter is in like the two and a half, three hour length category. Yeah, IMDb listed as three hours, three minutes. Yeah. I used to have like this feeling that films were always just 90 minutes. But with this podcast and some other things I'm on, on personal watch list, I'm like, no, there's always been two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour movies. It's just I don't remember them as being that long. Yep. Oh, yeah, the, the last episode I've edited for Upload was our discussion of The Sound of Music, which was just over the three-hour point as well. But yes, join us next month for Deer Hunter as we approach the end of the 70s. We only have two 1970s films left. So, and the one after Deer Hunter is the first Best Picture winner that I actually saw in the theaters. So, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.